Joe here for episode nine of the Upper Memory Block podcast. It has been two weeks since the last show came out, so of course it is time for us to uh, spend a little bit of time together talking about a really cool game in depth from the uh, from the DOS and Windows gaming era. I hope everyone enjoyed the last episode on Command and Conquer. I had uh, I had a lot of fun doing it, and uh, honestly. I can't say enough about the game, the Command and Conquer series, especially the first couple of games you know that I played way back when, will always stand out in my memory as as a really great set of uh, of games and you know the definition for real time strategy. Like I said, uh, like I said last week. So all that aside, time for a brand new show. I am ready to roll. I am excited. The reason, as I said last time, that I, I recorded a little bit early was because I went on a small little vacation with uh, with my wife to celebrate. Her new job. We went up to uh, to Mont Tremblant, which is one of our favorite uh, ski resorts in uh, in Quebec. So it was about a seven hour drive from uh, from Toronto, where we live. We uh, we had a great condo there, and uh, you know we did a bunch of hiking. Or actually, we didn't do any hiking this time, but we did a bunch of biking and uh, and some hill running for you know the the training for the 30k race that we are going to be running in August. So that was a lot of fun. It was nice and relaxing. We. Uh, we're able to get out into nature. We're able to eat some great food. I got to drink a bunch of great Quebec microbrewery uh, classic beers that I really enjoy. And uh, and yeah, so that was a lot of fun. It's been really, really hot here lately. I know a lot of people uh, in Canada and the U.S. have been experiencing quite a warm summer. Uh, today it uh, it was the today was actually the warmest day of the summer here in Toronto. It hit 36 degrees Celsius. Or actually, was that today? No, sorry, that was yesterday. Yesterday, it hit 36 degrees Celsius, which, uh, for all you Fahrenheit people, I'm uh, I'm not too sure exactly what that is, but it's definitely in the uh, in the mid to high 90s, which I know for uh, for my buddies out in Arizona and California and stuff like that, that may not seem too impressive. But hey, I live in Canada, the land of ice and snow. It's not supposed to get that hot here, and frankly, as a big Italian guy, I am not designed to handle such temperatures. But uh, weather report aside, I guess we should probably get into some news because I have a lot to say about this week's topic. So two big news stories uh, over over the past two weeks. There, there have been a couple of others, but I thought I'd pick out these two specifically. So back in April, when, these whole, uh, when this whole kind of Kickstarter thing with... Uh, with retro gaming was was kind of taking off with Double Fine Adventure and all that stuff. A Kickstarter was uh, was going on for Wasteland 2. The goal of this Kickstarter was to raise $900,000. They actually, in the beginning of all this Kickstarter hoo-ha, were able to raise $3 million. So they basically tripled their original goal. And the goal of this campaign was to make a modern sequel to the original Wasteland from 1988. Now, Wasteland is hailed as the granddaddy of post-apocalyptic RPGs, and uh, it inspired many follow-on games in in the genre like Fallout and and other things like that. 
Well, last week, the developers in Exile Entertainment confirmed that the original Wasteland game would actually ship along with Wasteland 2. Now, this is great news for people like me who really love post-apocalyptic RPGs but never got a chance to play the original. I never got a chance to actually... I actually hadn't even heard of Wasteland until this Kickstarter campaign, which uh, which is a little bit crazy. My first post-apocalyptic combat-style RPG was the original Fallout. So that's really cool, and uh, it's, it's great news. So, you know, I'm pretty sure I'll be getting Wasteland 2. Uh, I believe they already have pre-orders up on their site, which, uh, which I'll link in the show notes. And, uh, you know, it'll give me a great chance to play the new game and also uh, get an idea of what the original or the original was like. So the second little bit of news, as I'm sure most of you probably know, the Steam Summer Sale is on. It started last week. There are tons of great games on sale, including quite a few older titles, some of which I've even already covered. There's a, a lot of there's a whole package of Telltale games. So there you have your Sam and Max, your Monkey Island. Uh, there's a whole ID package, which includes not only Wolfenstein 3D that I already talked about, but Doom, Quake, Hexen, a whole bunch of other uh, ID games, you know, really great ID first-person shooters that, uh, that you might have a lot of fun trying out. There's some older stuff from Valve, like Half-Life and whatever, and there are new deals every single day on this. Uh, the sale runs through Sunday, July 22nd, so check it out over at steampowered.com. You may want to keep an eye on this one. Like I said, they update the deals every single day, so uh, definitely, definitely keep an eye on that so that'll do for the news like i said i'm gonna go through this stuff pretty quickly because um i didn't realize that i had a lot to say about red baron but it appears that i do so we are going to break right into things you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for all right so on to our main topic Red Baron. So Red Baron is one of the preeminent games in the combat flight simulator genre. It was developed by Dynamics and published by Sierra Online in the year 1990. Now this game kicked off a very popular series of Dynamics flight sims, which still have a loyal following today. Uh, Red Baron and its follow-on titles became the standard against which most other combat flight sims of the 90s were compared. But before we get to that, as usual, let's talk a little bit about uh, the combat flight sim genre in general. Red Baron is a flight simulator. More specifically, it is a historical combat flight simulator. Now, we've talked about simulation games before, back when I discussed space combat sims with Wing Commander and city building and management sims with SimCity. While combat flight sims are similar in scope to the space combat sim genre, uh, this one is decidedly more down-to-earth than, uh, than Wing Commander was. So combat flight sims are games designed to simulate the operation of military aircraft in a variety of combat situations. Uh, these types of games generally place the player in the cockpit of an aircraft where you're required to complete certain mission objectives by piloting the aircraft in a realistic manner. Uh, at times, you will be under the command of a computer-controlled flight leader. In other situations, you'll be on your own. And finally, later on in games, you may be in command of other planes in a flight yourself. 
Some combat flight sims focus on modeling a single aircraft, whereas others, such as Red Baron, are known as survey simulators. Now, this means that they include a variety, or survey, of different aircraft from the historical time period that they cover. Many games of this type tend to focus on a specific conflict and model many aircraft of different types and different roles from all sides of the conflict. This tends to really increase the replayability of these kinds of games. So, one major thing to keep in mind when I say realistic is that you shouldn't take that too literally. While a lot of the games in this genre do a fairly good job approximating the physics and quirks of certain aircraft, uh, the controls of any plane, especially modern military aircraft like F-16s, F-18s, you know, things like that, uh, are decidedly more complex than we can easily model on a standard PC, keyboard, mouse, joystick interface. Controls in combat flight sims tend to be quite simplified in comparison with the real-life aircraft they represent. Uh, there's indeed a reason it takes many hundreds of hours of instruction to become even a novice combat pilot. Uh, there's a lot to deal with, there's many things to monitor at once, and modeling all of this behavior 100% realistically would make games of this type pretty much unplayable for the average gamer, and frankly even the average pilot. Uh, therefore, most combat flight simulators either simplify or completely drop or even automate uh, a variety of cockpit functions, including things like fuel mixture, radar operation, navigation, weapon systems operation, and even certain aspects of uh, certain more, let's say, complex to deal with aspects of flight physics. Unfortunately, while during the 90s you couldn't swing a cat without hitting a new flight simulator game being released, uh, this genre has since gone into quite a decline. And while there's still some very complex and rich games like IL2, sorry, IL2 Strumovic, I believe it's called, and Microsoft Flight, uh, they tend to be very low-grossing niche games supported by small but rapidly loyal communities. It's quite sad, especially uh, given the role flight sims of this era played in my own life personally, which, you know, I may get into a little bit later. On to the story of Red Baron. Well, this one is quite simple, but also very complex at the same time. Uh, the simple part is that this is the story of World War I. The story of the game is told through its career mode. Upon entering a new career, you're prompted to choose a service for your pilot, either the German Air Service or the British Royal Flying Corps. You then get to select a name for your pilot and when in the war you've joined up. You have three options for this, the beginning in December 1915, the middle in October 1916, or late in the war in January of 1918. While the story of the war isn't really communicated in a very dramatic manner, I guess we could say. Uh, occasional newspaper articles do pop up during, uh, you know, between missions with headlines and short stories describing certain events such as, say, the U.S. entering the war, uh, certain well-known historical battles being fought, famous aces being shot down, and, you know, other things of, of that ilk. As you progress through the war, the state of things is described primarily by a map of the Western Front, which is accessible between missions. The front shifts as it did during the real war. As you successfully complete missions, you're given the opportunity to fly with famous aces and uh, fight infamous historical battles. This culminates in either flying together with Baron Manfred von Richthofen, aka the Red Baron, or shooting him down in his final dogfight, depending on which side of the war you chose to play on. 
So that's about it for the story. As I said, it's, you know, I could get into a history of World War One, but I don't think that's really necessary. So let's move on to the biggest chunk of this game and the biggest thing about it that I feel makes it really special, the gameplay. Red Baron was created to allow us to experience air combat in the golden age of aerial warfare, when men were men and planes were made of canvas. So this game begins with a really fun intro with some epic MIDI music, which then rolls into the credits. Once this is done, or you escape out of it because you don't really care to sit through the credits, uh, you're presented with the main menu. Red Baron has a wide variety of game modes, which allow you to experience World War I air combat in a few different ways. You have the option of dogfighting a famous ace, flying a single mission, or entering a full-blown career. For the full gameplay example, let's start out with dogfight a famous ace. This game mode allows a player to enter one-on-one -on -one combat with a huge list of famous aces from both sides of the conflict, including the Red Baron himself. Playing this way allows you to tailor the engagement right to your liking. You can select the type of plane you fly, the type of plane your enemy is flying, where the engagement takes place, either over your territory, over their territory, or over the front. So, you know, depending on which way you move, you'll kind of end up over one person's territory or the other. They also get to choose what altitude you start at, what altitude the enemy starts at, who has the sun at their backs, and finally the sky and wind conditions, which can seriously affect the performance of your aircraft. So this drops you into your selected plane, approaching your enemy at full throttle. This is where the fun begins. Red Baron supports a variety of control schemes, including keyboard and mouse, to control your plane. However, the way you want to go in this game, in my opinion, is an analog joystick. Now, I recall playing this game with my Gravis Advanced joystick back in 1990, and it was heaven. And if memory serves me correctly, and if the GOG version of Red Baron I played is true to the original, this game didn't support anything like additional throttles or rudder pedals or anything like that. It really only supported a simple two-button, four-axis joystick. Now, four-axis means the joystick understood eight different positions. Up, down, left, and right, plus upper left, upper right, lower left, and lower right. So you basically had eight positions that you could, uh, that you could move the plane in. This could be reproduced on the keyboard by pushing you know, up and left for upper left, down and left for lower left, etc., etc., so, if you are so equipped, you grab control of your joystick and you take control of your aircraft. So, looking around your cockpit, you have some basic instruments such as an altimeter to measure your altitude, of course, an airspeed indicator, a tachometer, which measures engine RPM, just like in your car, a fuel gauge, an oil pressure gauge, and a turn indicator, which is basically a primitive version of an artificial horizon, which basically tells you if you're turning or not. This is basically, I always find this funny, it's basically a marble in a curved groove. If the marble is sitting in the middle of the groove, of the curve, then you're flying level. If it's on the right or the left, you're in a turn. The joystick controls two of the four major controls of your aircraft. So pushing forward or pulling back on the stick controls your pitch or the up and down movement of the aircraft by moving the elevators, which are control surfaces attached to the rear of the plane, the rear stabilizer of the plane. Moving the joystick left or right controls the roll, which is the rotation of the aircraft around what I like to call its longitudinal axis. The longitudinal axis is basically if you take a stick and you shove it right through the plane into the nose and sticking out the tail, kind of like skewering a hot dog. That's the longitudinal axis of the plane. So left and right controls rolling around that axis. 
This is caused by moving control surfaces, known as the ailerons, which are located on the trailing edges of the wings. Those are the ones that you can see if you're flying in a commercial jet and you look out at the wings, and when the plane is turning, you can see these controls way at the end of the wing, moving up and down. That's what sort of rolls the plane around. Now, rolling the aircraft causes it to turn left or right, and if this is done in isolation, that is, you only move the joystick left or right, it will also cause the plane to nose down and start losing altitude. So that's pretty much all you can do with the joystick, aside from, well, you can do more things with the joystick, but these are the main two functions, uh, aside from firing your guns. Using the period and the comma keys on the keyboard, or if you press shift, it's actually the left and right angle brackets, which to me are actually a little more indicative of what this does. These control your yaw, which is the rotation of the plane around its central axis. So where the longitudinal axis was going through the plane into the nose and out the tail, the central axis goes vertically through the center of the plane. So, you know, if you picture the plane, say, as a model on a stand, uh, the, the central axis is kind of where the stand attaches to the plane. So this is controlled by moving the rudder. So if you move the rudder left and right, the plane's going to rotate around its central axis kind of in a flat kind of method. So finally, pressing the number 0 to 9 on your control on your keyboard controls the throttle in 10% increments. In air combat, speed and altitude are life, and thrust is controlled by the throttle, and that gives you that life. So using all these controls in unison allow you to effectively control your aircraft. For example, to turn left properly, you don't just move the joystick to the left. You actually have to move the joystick left, pull back a bit to keep the nose from dropping, apply a small amount of left rudder, and slightly increase the throttle to maintain your speed and altitude. This may seem like a lot to think about all at once, but Red Baron simplifies it a bit. It also gets a little bit of it wrong, and it offers a bunch of options to make things easier overall. So the thing you notice quickly is that dogfighting in this game tends to consist of getting behind your target, getting in close, and trying to shoot him down with your machine guns. This usually involves approaching an enemy plane, having it kind of pass you by, and then entering a relatively sharp turn to try and get him back in sight. Now, remember, in World War I, there wasn't any onboard radar or any other fancy targeting systems like that. You had what the pilots like to call the Mark I eyeball. So to find enemies, you have to keep your eyes peeled. You can look around at your environment by using a variety of internal and external camera views. Using the F keys along the top of the keyboard, you can look at fixed views all around your aircraft, including directly behind you. Uh, this is useful to see if an enemy's on your tail. You have the same series of views outside your aircraft, plus a cool, somewhat cinematic chase plane view, which honestly isn't incredibly useful in a, in a combat situation, but it's cool to look at. Using the different views does allow you to keep track of your enemies. However, I do find them a little bit clunky to kind of switch between because you got your hand on your joystick, your other hand's doing other keyboard stuff, or maybe it's not, and then you got to reach over, switch your views, and looking left, it's hard to control your plane, and things like that. So I tend my, to find myself really only using the rear view in kind of short spurts to see if anyone's shooting at me from behind. Aside from that, I kind of stick to the front view, and I know that really makes, that makes me less elite than, uh, than other people, but uh, that's just the way I roll. So if you win the turning game between you and your enemy, you will find yourself behind him. Now, machine guns on these planes were not entirely accurate and didn't carry tons of ammo, so you wanted to be pretty sure of your shot before you fired. 
Closing into about 30 yards is generally advised. Pulling your joystick trigger lets the hot lead fly, and uh, if you're aiming right, you will shoot your target and uh, and damage him. So this is probably the hardest part of the dogfight. It actually does take quite a few hits to down an enemy plane, and you can run out of ammo pretty quickly. Uh, once you do shoot a plane down, it kind of explodes, its upper wing folds in on itself, and the plane starts nosediving for the ground. Now, if you're flying for the British, the message, scratch one German plane, appears on the bottom of your screen, and that kind of tells you that, uh, that the fight is now over and you can continue on your way. Of course, you don't always win the turning game. At times, you do lose the turning game, and uh, the enemy can end up behind you. Uh, your plane can take quite a few hits, but a few lucky shots can take you down quickly. There are basically three kinds of, I guess we can call them, to, uh, to coin a, a Battletech term, critical hits, or maybe that's a Dungeons & Dragons term. Anyways, there's three types of critical hits that you, you can, uh, that you can suffer, and these are a bit difficult to deal with. So firstly, your engine oil line can be hit. This causes your engine to slowly over time lose oil pressure. So after a few minutes, your engine basically cuts out and all you can do is glide slowly to the ground, hopefully ending in an off-field landing and uh, more often than not ending in a crash. Secondly, in addition to your oil lines, your fuel lines can be hit. This of course results in a similar situation to that of the oil lines. Uh, your fuel starts to run out, and once you're out of gas, your engine dies. Hopefully, in this situation, the same as the oil situation, you're above enemy territory and you can land without crashing. Or you're not in enemy territory, we want you to be in friendly territory so that your friends can come and get you. Finally, since you are flying in what is effectively a canvas tent with wings, uh, you yourself can get shot by enemy bullets. If you sustain an injury, you will last a few minutes with kind of your view fading in and out of red uh, until you lose consciousness and once again you, uh, you die. So that may sound, again, a little bit dangerous and a little bit daunting, but luckily Red Baron provides a large set of realism options which you can toggle on or off to make the game a little more palatable to your specific skill level. The realism panel has a series of 13 options. 11 of them are on-off toggles, ranging from things like enabling unlimited ammunition, gun jams, or disabling or enabling gun jams, unlimited fuel, uh, you can get invincibility, you can enable or disable mid-air collisions, carburetor icing, uh, you can have, sorry, carburetor icing, which is a very bad situation, which can cause your engine to fail. Uh, instruments can behave realistically, so they'll have a lag, they may have uh, what's known as precession on your gyroscopic instruments. Anyways, there's a lot of, a lot of, different, uh, a lot of different options to tweak the game to your Desire. The remaining two options have a range of three settings each. Flight model controls the complexity of the aircraft physics and has the options of novice, intermediate, or advanced. On uh, the advanced setting, certain foibles, I guess we could call them, of specific aircraft are actually modeled. A great example of this is the ever-famous Sopwith Camel, which many of you may know as the plane Snoopy flew in his imaginary battles with the Red Baron in the, uh, in the Peanuts comics. The Camel was one of the greatest fighters of the war, accounting for the most enemy kills of any other allied fighter. Uh, it was also very finicky and tricky to fly. Because of the large rotary engine, the plane experienced what is called gyroscopic effect. 
So as the propeller spins, it has the tendency to pull the plane to one side. It's kind of like having your steering alignment out or one tire low on your car. So say that the propeller is spinning counterclockwise, the plane would want to pull kind of to the left. This caused the pilot to have to constantly compensate for this effect. Also, because of the arrangement of the engine and the fuel tank and everything being very close to the front of the plane, the plane is very nose-heavy, which means the pilot also has to constantly apply back pressure to the control stick to keep the plane from diving when in level flight. Red Baron modeled these behaviors if you decided that you wanted it to, which made it pretty cool. Uh, the realism panel really makes this game and its follow-on titles quite accessible to a huge range of player skills. You can kick this game down to what basically amounts to an arcade shooter, or you can crank it up to a fairly advanced World War I flight simulation with relatively realistic graphics. Now, the reason I say fairly advanced and relatively realistic is this. As I mentioned in the genre description, quite a few flight functions are not modeled at all, such as fuel mixture controls, taxiing your plane around on the ground, communications with bases, so you can communicate with your wingmates, but even then really only if you're the flight leader, but you can't really communicate with anyone else. Finally, one huge thing I noticed is that the rudder in this game is not modeled very realistically at all. In fact, it's effectively useless. Now remember how I explained that the, uh, the rudder controls yaw around the vertical axis of the plane? Well, it does do that in this game. However, it doesn't really have any of the realistic side effects that applying rudder has. So applying left rudder in the real world causes the plane to yaw left, but it also causes the plane to sort of start slipping down to the left as well. Also in the real world, when you enter a turn, you need to apply rudder in the direction of your turn to stop the plane from slipping down and eventually entering a spin. This behavior is just not modeled at all in the game, even on the full realism settings. That's just one small thing I noticed, and frankly, it didn't detract from any of the fun of the game for me all that much. But, uh, you know, maybe I'm specific or whatever, but I think, honestly, for most people, it most likely increases it because dealing with the rudder in kind of the control setup that you have with this joystick and having to reach over for the keyboard every time you want to turn, uh, it, it, it's not, honestly, that much fun. So aside from dogfighting famous aces, you also have the option of flying single missions. This allows you to choose any mission type in the game and specify, again, exactly the situation you'd like to experience. Mission types include straight-up dogfights, scrambles to intercept incoming enemies attacking your aerodrome, standard patrols along the front, observation balloon busting or protection if they're yours, bomber escort or, again, interception, or my personal favorite, zeppelin hunting. The zeppelin hunting missions are tons of fun. Well, tons of fun if you're playing the game. I don't imagine they were tons of fun in World War I. But you and your flight basically get to locate and make attack runs on these massive airships with enemy escort planes and having to avoid the Zeppelins mounted uh, anti-aircraft machine guns. It's such a very specific World War I experience. I mean, the only thing I can really compare it to is something that doesn't exist in real life. It's, uh, I can compare it to making attack runs on capital ships and space sims like Wing Commander or attacking Star Destroyers and X-Wing. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like actually doing that back during the war, just trying flying your little rickety plane in to try and take down this massive Zeppelin bristling with guns. It's just mind-boggling. So finally, the last game mode is career mode, which I discussed back in the story section. 
And you can set your realism options on a mission by mission basis. In addition, you can even change them in flight. Uh, if you change them within the first few seconds of flight, any point modifiers you alter by increasing or decreasing the difficulty will apply. Uh, you do get points per mission. The points tend to be a measure of, say, your mission performance. And, uh, you know, they don't say it specifically, but it appears that exceeding a certain point threshold will net you things like medals or promotions or, uh, or possible transfers to other squadrons. So it is to your advantage to try and do as well as possible in, uh, in the career mode missions. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... All right, time for the new and improved tech focus section, as I discussed last week. So Red Baron's original system requirements back in 1990 were MS-DOS 5.0 or Windows 3.0 or greater, uh, a 286 or better CPU, a 2x CD-ROM if you had the CD-ROM version, 640k of RAM, 19 megabytes of hard drive space, CGA, EGA, MCGA 4 color, Tandy, PC Junior, or VGA graphics, and a wide variety of sound cards like the AdLib PC speaker, PS1 audio, Roland MT32, hooray, the Sound Blaster, the Tandy DAC, or the Tandy or PC Junior. Uh, also supported is an analog joystick, keyboard, and mouse. So Red Baron had reasonably good graphics when compared to other games of the time. They weren't groundbreaking by any means, but they did most definitely serve the purpose. Technically, they were standard 320 by 216 color graphics. Now, unlike Wing Commander, which released the same year, Red Baron did not use sprites to increase the detail level of their aircraft. They were rendered as flat-colored 3D models using the three-space engine that Dynamics had developed for their simulation games. Like Wing Commander, however, Red Baron did support the AdLib and Sound Blaster for sound effects and MIDI music. However, unlike most other Sierra and Slash Dynamics games, or Dynamics, Dynamics or Dynamics? I think I've mentioned this before. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this. I imagine... Anyways, I'll say Dyn... I'll say both, because I'm not really paying attention. Anyways, uh, unlike other Sierra and Dynamics games, it did not originally support the Roland MT32. However, a patch was released shortly after the game shipped, adding support for it. Uh, there isn't a ton of music in this, in this game. It's really, honestly, just the intro and a couple of snippets when you get awards or promotions. And though the music in Red Baron isn't plentiful, it's really quite fitting and really quite epic feeling, especially, as I said, during the intro. It makes you feel really, really cool. So one major issue which started in this game and only got worse with subsequent Dynamics flight sims was memory requirements. Now, these games really only used the 640K of conventional memory available on all PCs. Uh, for Red Baron to start, you needed to have 583K of conventional memory free if you had a mouse driver installed, a CD-ROM driver, and other things like that, and you didn't take advantage of the 286 and later PCs uh, 64K 
of available upper memory blocks, <laughs> possibly where I got the name of the podcast. Uh, so if you didn't use that extra 64K of upper memory to load DOS and some other things, you could easily not have that 583 kilobytes of base memory available to start the game. Uh, this game and its descendants were honestly my introduction to tweaking memory, selectively loading drivers, and creating game-specific boot disks. Fiddling with these drivers and these memory areas and the config.sys and autoexec bat files on my boot disks really taught 9-year-old and maybe 10-year-old me how computers work. It, it taught me what memory was, why there were different kinds of memory, how the operating system manages it, things like that. It's things like this that really honestly got me interested in computers and eventually got me interested into programming, which led me into computer science in university and onto development as a career path. So kids, if your parents tell you to stop playing those damn video games, tell them you're working towards your future. Cause I know my parents told me to stop playing those damn video games. And, uh, well I didn't. And, uh, I can only hope so far. It seems like it worked out pretty well. You're listening to the upper memory block podcast. Time for development story. All right, development story. So as iconic and well-known and popular as Red Baron is, there's really very little information about the game and Dynamics, the company that made it. I was able to find some info with, uh, with a little bit of digging and, uh, and Google foo. So here we go. Dynamics was founded by two men, Jeff Tunnel and Damon Sly. In 1981, after recently graduating from the University of Oregon, Jeff Tunnel bought his first Apple II computer and uh, coincidentally started a software store out of his own home, which he called Computer Tutor. At the same time, he was furiously programming in Apple Basic, trying to break into the games industry. Now, after moving his store eventually from his home to an actual retail location, he encountered University of Oregon student Damon Sly. Sly was working on his own game. It was a wireframe sci-fi tank simulator, which he called Stellar 7. While Tunnel was trying to get things done using his somewhat, using kind of the somewhat limited Apple Basic, Sly knew 6502 assembly. Assembly language is a low-level programming language, which allows you direct access to the resources of the processor and the computer and other things like that. Uh, there's no automation, and it takes a lot of code to do very simple things. I remember back in university, I had uh, an assembly language programming class where we had to make a tic-tac-toe game. The code to make this very simple, straightforward tic-tac-toe game printed out to 70 pages. So that just gives you a bit of an idea of how much work it actually is to program in, uh, in assembly language. Now, the advantage of this low-level control of the processor is that it allows you to develop very small-sized and very high-performance applications. This comes in very, very handy in game development where you usually want things to run as fast as possible. So the fact that Sly knew Assembler impressed Tunnel to no end, and he hired Sly on the spot to work with him in his computer store. Tunnel soon sold off the store and the two founded a software entertainment company to sell their games. In 1983, Stellar 7 was released for the Apple II. Sales were, as tends to happen in these situations, quite low, with the game only selling about 8,000 units. 
Sly states that his belief was that the game was heavily pirated, since apparently everyone he spoke to played and loved the game. He also claims that acclaimed author Tom Clancy called him and said how much he loved the game. Now, by 1984, after a few more disappointing game releases, the company was renamed Dynamics, and two other University of Oregon alums would come on board to round out the group of partners. Well, SEC, Software Entertainment Company, was created mainly to publish games created by others, Dynamics was refocused on actual game development and started developing games for, to, uh, for publishing by Electronic Arts. Now, Damon Sly was really ahead of his time. Before he started work on Stellar 7 while he was in college, he first developed his version of a game engine, which he called 3Space. He wrote 3Space shortly after he graduated from high school and obviously before he began work on Stellar 7. Uh, this system formed the basis of Stellar 7. The first game that uh, they developed for EA was called Arctic Fox. Now, Arctic Fox was uh, a spiritual successor to Stellar 7, and it was an instant hit. The company continued releasing games, concentrating on simulations, but also venturing into the uh, adventure game arena with some classical third-person adventure games like, uh, you know, similar to games we've covered like Sam and Max and the Space Quest series. But they also broke ground with the with uh, first-person style adventure games. Most of their games were based on the ever-evolving three-space game engine that Sly had created just out of high school. Uh, the company was expanding, and Tunnel and Sly, Dynamics, didn't want to be beholden to publishers who would ultimately own their intellectual property. So their next two games, David Wolf, Secret Agent, and A-10, Tank Killer, which was a flight sim focusing on flying the A-10 Thunderbolt 2, were, uh, were the first games released under Dynamics' own name. So A-10, released in 1989 to five-star reviews. It was an incredible flight simulator, very deep, very awesome, and Dynamics was on top of the world. However, they were also very seriously low on money. They had burned through whatever reserves they had trying to get A-10 on shelves. Despite the fact that it was selling well, according to an excerpt from Jeff Tunnel's journal, the company did not have enough money to continue operating long enough to collect their outstanding accounts receivable from their distributors. And even if they were able to do that, the sales of the two games on their own would not be enough to cover the newly grown company's operating expenses. To continue operations as both a developer and a publisher, they needed to raise about $1.5 million ASAP. In August of 1989, so the year after A10 Tank Killer came out, Dynamics entered a deal to license their 3Space technology to Sierra Online. Uh, the leadership of both companies, Sly and Tunnel and, uh, and Ken Williams from Sierra, uh, stayed in contact after the deal closed. Eventually, Williams kind of took a shine to, uh, to this 3Space technology, and he proposed an acquisition. At the time, it was most definitely, definitely viewed as a win-win. Dynamics very badly needed an infusion of cash to keep them afloat. And Sierra management, as I said, really loved their 3Space tech. Dynamics could continue to make simulations without interference, since Sierra was actually pretty weak in, uh, in the simulation space. And so, in 1989, Dynamics became one of Sierra's first acquisitions. Now, pre-acquisition, in parallel to development of A-10 Tank Killer, was an even more ambitious project. 
another flight simulator using the same three space technology, but instead of focusing on a single aircraft like A-10, the next game would focus on the aerial campaign along the western front of World War I. Uh, it would model almost 20 different aircraft of the time along with their unique flying characteristics and allow a player to fly his way through the war as either a British or German pilot. Now, this game, as we well know by now, was Red Baron. Now, whereas A-10 was purely a dynamics project, Red Baron was released under the Sierra banner to critical acclaim. Uh, I read that Dragon Magazine gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and Computer Gaming World gave it the award for number one simulation of the year for 1990. In 1992, Aces of the Pacific took the same tropes as Red Baron and moved them into, this, into the uh, Pacific theater of World War II, where you could fly a variety of U.S. and Japanese planes. It expanded your role from simply flying fighters to piloting fighter bombers armed with droppable bombs, doing ground attack missions on planes with rocket pods, uh, torpedo bombing missions on naval ships, and of course, the dreaded carrier landings uh, for on Navy ships. Aces the Pacific also introduced a couple of quality, and life, uh, quality of life improvements, such as a uh, wing commander style cinematic autopilot, an in-flight map reference, and uh, other things like that. Graphics were slightly improved, but remained basically similar to Red Baron's kind of flat 16 color 3D uh, environment. In 1993, Aces Over Europe did the same thing over again, but took us back to Europe, this time in the Second World War. So finally, from 1993, we jump to October 1997. Dynamics releases Red Baron 2, finally a direct sequel to the original game. It uses a brand new, great-looking 3Space 2.0 engine, which is designed to run natively on Windows 95. Overall, the game is great. It's much more immersive than the original game, with 1024 by 768 256 color graphics, highly detailed plane models, a greatly improved physics engine, a dynamic campaign mode, and tons of other stuff. I played this game as well in doing research uh, you know, for this podcast, and it takes the best of the original game and evolves it to the standards of, of 1997. Now, there was one major flaw with Red Baron 2. As good as the graphics looked compared to its 320 by 216 color predecessors, it did not take advantage of dedicated 3D accelerators, which were becoming quite, honestly, quite popular by 1997. This was a major ding against the game because many other uh, games in general and flight simulators specifically at the time were most definitely uh, leveraging 3D acceleration. Dynamics and Sierra did realize this and promised a 3D acceleration patch was in development. Now, by 1998, a major patch, including support for the current king of 3D, 3DFX, and their glide technology was released. Uh, so in addition to this 3D upgrade, a bunch of tweaking was done to the flight models uh, and, and many, many other bug fixes. While the patch was freely available to current Red Baron 2 owners, the game was also remarketed and re-released as a, a new game called Red Baron 3D. Now, Red Baron 3D is basically the pinnacle of Dynamics historical flight sims and enjoys a strong following even today in 2012. Uh, in 2004, a community-made super patch was developed by the fan community with even more improvements, more robust internet multiplayer support, and further improved graphics. 
it enjoyed such a resurgence in popularity that it almost again won simulation of the year in 2004. It was only narrowly beat out by Microsoft Flight Sim 2004, which is not that bad for a six-year-old game. That is honestly pretty damned impressive. So as we've discussed in past episodes for other games, Red Baron 3D continues to be popular because at the core, the game is very moddable. It's relatively easy to load in new plane skins, make improvements to the game's underlying models, fix bugs, and things like that. Add to that the completely dynamic campaign system and complete view of World War I from all sides, because uh, in this game they also included uh, the ability to fly for the French, uh, you can see most definitely why this game still has a loyal following even 14 years after its release. So what does the future hold for Red Baron? Well, the flight sim genre is not, as I said, nearly as popular as it once was. It definitely does hold on as a niche with some very well-regarded current-gen games, but uh, I'm happy to say that uh, Damon Sly, Jeff Tunnell, and a few other Dynamics and uh, even LucasArts alums got together in 2007 and formed Mad Otter Games. In 2010, they acquired the rights to the Red Baron franchise. Uh, will there be a future Red Baron? Well, it's most certainly a possibility now. So where can we get Red Baron today? There's, uh, there's a few ways to get your hands on Red Baron. One of them, as uh, I'm sure many of you will be happy to hear, is free. So if you just want to experience the first game, uh, Dynamics released the original 16-color DOS version of Red Baron as a free download on their site. Uh, the download has been preserved over at Wings of Honor, which is a great flight sim community. I'll, of course, link that in the show notes. Uh, the original game runs great under DOSBox. I was able to get it running, and with uh, a few minor tweaks, I was able to get it to use my MT32, and um, it also used my Logitech Extreme 3D Pro USB joystick without any trouble at all. Obviously, it didn't take advantage of the onboard little throttle control and the onboard rudder twisting and all the other fancy buttons, but uh, using the, you know, the regular four-axis control and, uh, and two main buttons, it worked fine. Now, the other way to get it is, of course, as usual, via good old games, aka GOG.com. Now, the first thing I believe that Mad Otter Games did when they got the, uh, when they got the, the IP rights to Red Baron was package up Red Baron and Red Baron 3D for sale on GOG. It's available there for a mere $9.99 US, which, uh, which gets you both games. So as I said, the original game, even the GOG version, runs perfectly fine under DOSBox. Now Red Baron 3D was a little bit more of a challenge to get going. I'm starting to see a trend here in doing this podcast that games that were designed for Windows 95 and 98 tend to not be as easy to get going on current uh, Win 764 systems. Uh, the game would load the intro movie and then immediately crash on me. Uh, it turns out that the game could not go into full-screen mode. Running it in a window using direct drum mode worked fine. However, reading some of the community forums told me that running in a window in direct drum mode, I was not getting the best graphical experience since the game was originally designed to use uh, the 3DFX glide uh, technologies. 
So since 3DFX went out of business way back when, and I know I have promised a couple of people that I'm going to do a focus episode on 3DFX, and uh, and don't worry everyone, that is indeed coming. But uh, anyway, since 3DFX went out of business, modern graphics cards don't really support Glide anymore. Uh, I was, though, thanks to, again, the Red Baron 3D community sites, able to find an appropriate Glide wrapper DLL file. So you just drop this uh, this link library into the game directory, and uh, you set the game to use Glide graphics, and you're in, full screen and all. Now, there's a couple of different uh, Glide wrappers. I had to try, I think there's, the place I checked had about five of them. I had to skim through three different ones before I found one that worked. But, um, but, you know, it wasn't really that tough and, uh, and the game looks miles better using kind of the, the glide emulation wrapper that, uh, that they provide there for free. So if you just want the 1990 game, then, uh, then feel free to go, go the free route, download it from wings of honor. It's perfectly legal. It's perfectly allowed. But if you do want both games and you're willing to peruse some, some friendly community forums, then hit up GOG for the full pack. It is well worth it. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're, we're huge, huge Disneyland, Disneyland fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. And now, on to the big question of the cast. Does Red Baron hold up today well well this is a tough one for me so before i i give you my my verdict here i guess i got to tell you a bit of a story so growing up uh my dad worked for uh worked for the airlines he wasn't a pilot or anything he was a a programmer for them and eventually a, a business manager and things like that but that caused me to kind of be around planes my whole life uh, I used to go to the airport with my aunt when I was a little kid just to watch the planes move around on the ground. This, of course, is when you could go to the airport and watch the planes without people thinking you had a bomb on you. Um, anyways, uh, when I was 16, I joined the Air Cadets. Uh, for those of you not from Canada, I think the the, the UK has a, a version of this as well, but the cadet program is a, a paramilitary organization for 12 to 19-year-olds where they basically learn uh, military-style discipline, citizenship, and things like that. It's kind of like you know military training to a certain extent for uh, for young kids. Uh, through this great organization, I, I made some really amazing lifelong friends. Uh, came to my own as a person with confidence and leadership skills, and and much more. Joining the Air Cadets basically changed my life, and it also changed my life in another way. Where in 1998. Uh, I qualified for the Glider Pilot Scholarship Program. 
So as a result of that, one the summer of 1998, I did a six-week course in uh, in Comox, British Columbia, on uh, on the military base there, earning my glider pilot license, my official legal Transport Canada glider, glider pilot license. And the next summer in 99, uh, I qualified for the flying scholarship where I went to uh, to Saint-Jean sur Richelieu, Quebec, and uh, the military base there, where I supplemented that glider pilot license with an honest-to-goodness private pilot license. So I have my my pilot's license. And uh, honestly, it's games like Red Baron, the follow-on Aces games, MS Flight Simulator, and others that really inspired my love of aviation. Uh, The opportunity arose to get my pilot's license basically for free, aside from the time and effort I had to put into it. And these games gave me the confidence to think I could actually do that. Like for for a 17-year-old kid to fly a plane, it just seems unbelievable. And, you know, if I hadn't played these games, I don't think I would have thought that it would have even been possible for me to do, and I probably wouldn't have gone about to do it. Um, You know, so... Red Baron, for me, surely holds up today. Uh, I had just as much fun playing it for this show than I did when I was 9 or 10 years old. When I was playing Red Baron 3D, I spent an hour flying a mission without autopilot and without time compression. I was just having a great time flying information with my flight leader, not even fighting for you know a good three quarters of the mission, just trying to fly in a straight line, which honestly, if you've ever flown a real plane, is pretty freaking challenging. Uh, you know, are the graphics in the original game hugely dated? Yes, yes, they are. Does that make it less fun? Well, for me, the answer is no. For you, the answer might be something else. But, you know, there's a reason that Red Baron is hailed as one of the greatest flight sims of all time, because honestly, at the core of it all, it's just a great game. So I guess, you know, that that's it for another show. And, uh, you know, as usual, I just want to thank everyone for listening. If this is your your first time listening to the show, I, I hope you're enjoying it. If, uh, if you keep coming back week after week, I have to thank you immensely. It still amazes me every week when, you know, I look at the numbers of the downloads and, uh, and you know, they go up and I get feedback from, from you guys and, and you're telling me that you enjoy the show and, and you have really good nostalgia and all that. It just, it, it really does make this all worthwhile. I mean, I have a great time doing it regardless, but it's really great to hear, uh, to hear that people are enjoying the show. Now, unfortunately this week I did not get any, uh, I did not get any emails or voicemails or anything like that. But, you know, if you guys do want to send me any comments about, you know, be it Red Baron, anything else, any of the previous games, I'd love to get some, some Command and Conquer comments and things like that. You can, of course, email me in either text form or send me an audio mp3 or an iphone voice memo or anything like that to podcast at umbcast.com i love getting your email i love reading it on the show send it on in people so anyways aside from that next week i uh, i put a little post on the facebook group uh and due to popular demand we are going to be covering uh, Descent, the Descent series of games. Now, Descent is not a game I played a lot of, but I do remember enjoying it a decent amount for the amount of time that I did play it. So stay tuned next week for a really great in-depth overview of uh, of Descent. Now, that's that. Thank you, as usual, to uh, to Rick Moyer for all of his great audio work that, uh, that he does for the show. Check out the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes, in addition to uh, a couple of fun posts here and there at the show website, umbcast.com. 
Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. And of course, subscribe to the show on iTunes or leave me a, uh, a review there or you can listen to us live on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again, everyone, and I will see you all next time here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.